An Eastern Airlines Lockheed Electra is taking off from Boston when an unexpected series of events caused the plane to crash. What might have caused this plane to crash into the bay right after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. I'm filling in for Nick. I'm Brendan. And welcome, everyone. We're good to have you back. Chug a luggin. Yeah. Welcome to part two of our mini series. If you did not listen to the last episode, highly suggest you go listen to that episode first, the one that came out last week. Episode and then, 85. Yes. It was a much more simpler one than this one, and a much more prime example of what went wrong. So, our point is, do not start with this one. Go back. Go back. Go back. Should be linked on the website. That's just because we want more listens. So Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Next week will be the week that we read our listener stories for this month, which is summer vacation stories. So go ahead. And go to the website and submit those pretty please and thank you. And check out the merch store. Yep, we have some awesome merch. Brendan is wearing some right now. Not that you can tell. He has a shirt that says hashtag Miranda gets mad at history. Which I feel like is so perfect because you're the one who came up with that to begin with. Right. (laughs) Definitely worth the purchase. All right, friends. Uh, What are we covering today, Brendan? Buckle your seatbelts, everyone. We're covering Eastern Airlines Flight 375. This one's a doozy, so buckle up and hang on, because here we go. Okay. This incident occurred on October 4th, 1960. The aircraft was a Lockheed L-188 Electra. Registration, November 5533. At the time, it was the plane was just a little bit over a year old. That sucks. Yeah, my brand new airplane. In case you're unfamiliar with the Lockheed Electra, it is powered by four wing-mounted Allison T-56 turboprop engines, capable of producing 5,000 horsepower apiece. Wow. <laughs> that will come in handy later, so okay. remember that info. <laughs> I did a whole bunch of research on these engines. Eastern Airlines Flight 375 was a regularly scheduled passenger flight from Boston, Massachusetts to Atlanta, Georgia, with intermediate stops in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Greenville, South Carolina. Just kind of like our last one, it was also to Atlanta with intermediate stops, but it took off from Newark instead. Maybe don't fly to Atlanta, apparently. Via... Not when you're on the East Coast. And also similar to our last episode, this accident occurred on our first leg from Boston to Philadelphia. Great. Our captain for today's flight is Captain Curtis Fitz, age 59, total of 23,195 flight hours, 1,053, which were on the L-188. This was very interesting. Follow this. He held a valid FAA airline transport pilot certificate with further ratings on the Martin 702, 404, Convair 240, 340, 440, the DC-4, DC-6, DC-7, the Lockheed Constellation, and the L-188. Oh my god. This dude wow. could fly some planes. No kidding. <laughs> but that, that was more of the era where you could do that, though. Yeah. Now, it's not as strict as it is now. Now, if you're a commercial pilot, it's pretty much like... That's your plane, but that's what you fly. Right. Yeah. Our first officer is Martin Calloway. Age was not mentioned in the report. Don't know why. 
He had a total of 5,820 hours. 201 were on the Electra. Hmm. Okay. Our flight engineer for this flight was Malcolm Hall. Age was also not mentioned. He had a total of 7,796 flying hours, of which 369 were on the Electra. On today's flight, there were 67 passengers and 5 crew, the 3 pilots and 2 flight attendants, for a total of 72 people on board. Before departing Boston, the flight crew filed an IFR flight plan to Philadelphia at 10,000 feet. Weather was good this day, scattered clouds, good visibility, and winds at 11 knots. So pretty, pretty good day for flying. According to the report, no maintenance was necessary while the aircraft was on the ground in Boston. It had just arrived from New York and was doing a quick turn on its way to Georgia. The plane was loaded with a total of 24,900 pounds of fuel, and the total gross weight at the ramp was calculated, gross weight meaning the whole airplane, everything involved, 97,987 pounds. This was well below the minimum allowable weight for the aircraft. Okay. Good to go there. So weight was not a problem. Flight 375 departed the ramp at 5.35 local time. The crew was issued their IFR clearance in accordance with their flight plan with instructions to fly runway heading for two minutes after takeoff. At approximately 5.37 p.m. Eastern Airlines 375 began its takeoff roll down runway 9. The pilots called V1 at 104 knots and VR, rotating speed, at 116 knots. After a ground roll of about 2,500 feet, or, I did the calculations on this one correctly, 762 meters, the aircraft rotated off the ground and attained a height of 30 to 40 feet, 10 to 12 meters, above the ground. It continued at that height, nearly level, for a distance of several hundred feet before establishing a normal climb attitude. So it kind of went up a little bit, maintained the kind of that 30, 40 feet off the ground before it continued to climb. Yeah, makes sense. During that time, the gear was raised, and the plane climbed straight ahead for a short time. Suddenly, there was a poof of smoke from engine number one, and a ball of fire from engine number two. Oh, that's nice. The aircraft veered to the left, and then returned to its original course. The speed was also noticeably slow. Eastern Airlines Flight 375 returned to a heading from 090 to about 030 in a flat turn. What this means is that the wings did not bank, tilt left or right. It yawed. It yawed. So it, I got a little model airplane here. It just did this. Yeah. So it's like what you do in your car when you turn. Basically, yep. Because we don't roll a car to turn it. You stay on one level plane. It's a weird experience in an airplane when that happens. Yeah, we kind of did that on our flight to Sterling. Mm Mm-hmm. Two photographs were taken of the accident aircraft after making this turn to 030. The first picture showed the aircraft in a 9 degrees nose-up attitude, and the second picture, taken one second later, showed the aircraft in a 14 degrees nose-up attitude. Huh. Weird. At the same time, they were not gaining any altitude. Oh, that's not good. That is not good. That's stall territory. Witnesses testified that the aircraft was seen to execute a maneuver more closely described as a wing-over. Describe that to me? What the heck is that? Oh, so it flipped. The wing goes over. <laughs> okay. It inverted. It kind of goes into a little more detail here. Okay. During this maneuver, the nose came up higher while the left wing dropped near vertical. So it actually kind of did something like that. Okay. The nose went up and the left wing started dropping. Okay. 
the nose of Flight 375 dropped rapidly and started to descend. Moments later, and 47 and a half seconds after commencing takeoff, the aircraft struck the water almost vertical while still rotating to the left. Wow. The impact area was in Winthrop Bay, approximately 2,000 feet to the left of the center line of Runway 9, and approximately 7,000 feet from the point takeoff was started. So, question... What side are engines 1 and 2 on? So 1 and 2 is on the left side, 3 and 4 is on the right side. And they were flipping over to the left? So they were, yeah, rolling over to the left. Okay, did that have something to do with the fact that those engines weren't working anymore? That is partially to deal with it, yes. Okay. We will get into it. And yeah, we'll get all into the science and stuff like that. The three pilots and 59 passengers received fatal injuries, both flight attendants and eight Passengers survived the accident with injuries. Nine of them were severe. Well, they survived, though. That's nice. Mm-hmm. It is believed that more people did survive the initial impact. And then drowned. But were unable to escape the plane before it sank. Yeah. Not great. Yep. And uh, I don't know if you have a picture of the wreckage, but it is... Rough. Yeah, I got I got it here. Whoa! It's just, it just got obliterated. Everything in front of the tail was just gone. Yeah. Like, the tail's the only thing left. Here they are pulling it out of the water. Going slightly into science zone of fluid dynamics, water is an incompressible fluid. Yeah. Therefore, when you strike water, as in a plane or a belly flop, Mm -hmm. the water acts almost as a solid surface. So... It just obliterates. Yeah. Unlike jello. Unlike a lot of fluids. Air Air is considered a fluid. And that is very comp- compressible. Yes. And <laughs> other liquids can also be pressurized. Yeah. Whereas water cannot. Cannot. So that's all I got. Let's talk about why this plane had crashed into the water. <gasps> Thanks. I would love to know. Although you might already know because we're in the middle of a series. But if you don't, maybe you should go back an episode. We might throw a curveball at you. Oh, well, maybe. <laughs> that sports term for it. something might be different this time. <laughs> Thank you for describing that sport reference. Some people don't understand sports. I got you covered. <laughs> Just go to Brendan with all your sports Unless questions. it's a hockey reference, a lacrosse le- reference, most football. I got, I got most football. Mostly hockey. Basketballs. Eh. I've watched so much basketball. Okay, sorry. I'm <laughs> sidetracked here. Let's get back on test. Yeah. Christy, what do you got for us? This investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB. Cab. C-A-B. Cab. Just like last week. Cap. <laughs> the wreckage was guarded by the U.S. Coast Guard, which was instrumental in recovery efforts, which were conducted by the U.S. Navy, and they huh. brought the recovered parts to a warehouse. Investigators determined from the wreckage that the aircraft struck almost vertically, though the left wing did strike first. All flight control surfaces were recovered, and impact marks indicated that the left aileron was in a neutral position at the time, which is interesting given that there was a turn noted by witnesses, though the right aileron was down about a third of the way. Investigators were unable to discern the positions of the elevator and rudder at the time of impact. There were no anomalies in the control system cables and such outside of normal impact forces. The flaps were found at takeoff setting and were symmetrically extended. So... One thing you have to keep in mind, too, is this aircraft was, I believe, cable-driven. Yes. However... There's no hydraulics. There's no... There are hydraulic assists. Okay. That makes sense. Because it's such a big plane. It was a large airplane at the time. 
Just after the accident, investigators were alerted to a scene on the runway. Quote, bodies and pieces of bodies representing approximately 75, though on the map says 100, birds, identified as starlings, were scattered predominantly on the left side of runway 9 between the intersection of taxiway 33 and runway 33. The remains were strewn over an area roughly 400 foot long by 200 foot wide, end quote. Wow. Oh, okay. These are not big birds. No, they're tiny birds. They're like songbirds. Yeah. But still, 75 to 100 birds is... A lot of birds. A lot. Based on what was recovered from the wreckage, the investigators concluded that the birds struck engines 1, 2, and 4, but not engine 3, as there were no bird remains in that engine. Good to know. Investigators performed bird ingestion tests on engines and determined that bird strikes... Two engines have potential to reduce power output by blocking airflow, decreasing compressor efficiency, and can go so far as to not provide any power and can cause surges. A single Starling ingestion showed negligible power interruption, and 90% of power was recovered. Two Starlings decreased horsepower by 15% at cruising power, 10% at takeoff power. In each scenario, at least 50% of power was available the entire time. In particular, ingestion of more than three starlings can cause auto-feathering. Do you recall what it means to feather an engine? Yes. So the, the propeller blades turn yep. and feather so that they keep turning, if that's right when they get damaged or something like that. But don't produce any thrust. Right. So there's no thrust, but it, keeps, it just turns so that nothing happens to the blades. Right. Basically, they, they're like this normally, and that produces the most amount of thrust right but when you feather them all the way they turn this way in the direction of airflow right so the point is when that happens they have nothing to push the blade yeah so they just kind of hold still so these particular engines are controlled by changing the angle of the propeller blades to adjust how much air the propeller blade is basically chopping and pulling okay and one thing to make note too is that these are turboprop engines so they're basically jet engines that turn a propeller prior to this the big old massive radial engine piston radial engines were the common thing so that's something to keep in mind because they, they act completely differently and the way they intake birds into the engine so so as i was saying ingestion of more than three starlings can cause auto feathering which is where the engine will automatically feather cause the engine to flame out and or reduce the power below 50% for several seconds. A six Starling ingestion had a variety of results in different trials. Engine failure, power reduced to below 50% for four seconds, and flame out with successful reignition were all possibilities produced in separate trials, though each one resulted in auto feathering. Engine recovery after ingesting more than eight Starlings appears to be quote unquote very improbable. They tested this three times. Two times the engine failed, and the last trial led to a flame-out reignition, but the temperature in the engine was too high and it had to be shut down. This was exacerbated if, if the ingestion wasn't simultaneous eight birds, but rather in two groups of four birds each. Using such research, it was determined that Engine 1 ingested at least four birds because it had auto-feathered. The fact the Engine 1 auto-feathered actually means it was the first engine to ingest birds because there is a system in place that doesn't allow other engines to auto-feather once one does. Ah, okay. So, that one struck first. 
Because the engine did not flame out and witnesses only reported smoke and not flames, investigators determined that the number of birds ingested did not exceed six. Okay. Working left to right, let's go to engine two. Yeah, hold on. That might be a safety thing. Okay. Because if you, all of a sudden, if all four engines start to feather, auto feather. There's no thrust. You get no thrust. But. No, no potential for thrust, I should say. Because you still have manual control over the, the mm-hmm. pitch of the propeller. But if all four of them suddenly give you no feather. thrust. Now, I know, yeah. I know if all four engines fail, that means one auto feathers and the four are just creating drag. But then you would be responsible for that. So I think it might just be a, maybe a safety mechanism. That's my speculation. I had asked Brendan about it earlier because I thought it sounded really dangerous to only allow one to auto feather, since it is a safety mechanism that it can auto feather. That makes sense, though. Yes. If to not if it's a safety thing, so that you have control over the other propeller blades. Yes. That's what I'm guessing. It makes sense. We it's did a not, good, educated guess. And we right. did not design the aircraft, so it's speculation. Call up Lockheed, see what they say. Working left to right, let's go to engine two. Several witnesses saw flames from the number two engine after the number one engine already would have auto-feathered, which was indicative of at least four starlings being ingested, but fewer than eight because the engine was able to be reignited and recover substantial power based both on witness statements as well as scoring inside the engine, as well as in engines three and four, which indicated operation at the time of impact. So investigators settled on at least six birds ingested. Again, there was no evidence of bird ingestion by engine three. Engine four lost less power than engines one and two, and it was able to be recovered after ingestion, and there were no flames from the right side, according to witnesses. Investigators concluded that it had ingested fewer birds than engines one and two, which makes sense since most of the bird carcasses were found left of the center line of the runway. Hmm. Yeah. So this is the carcasses zone. Okay. 75 to 100 birds. The flight path of going to the left also suggests a power asymmetry such that the left side had less power than the right side. Yeah. Based on the fact that Engine 1 was able to auto-feather and was able to be shut down, as well as the status of other systems on board, investigators concluded that at least one generator was working at any time in the accident sequence, which makes sense since Engine 3 seemed to operate normally the whole time. And this means that hydraulic assist was available to the primary flight controls for the whole flight. This seems like kind of a weird conclusion to draw at this point in the analysis, but it essentially means that there wasn't a reduction or loss of control in the flight control surfaces that caused the crew to lose control of the plane. Mm-hmm. The loss of control came entirely from the loss of engine power and the subsequent consequences, which Brendan will now go into since he understands it more than I do. We're going to take a break break, and then Brendan's going to get into stuffy stuffs. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back. Brendan, explain. All right. If you didn't buckle your seatbelts before, you will really want to do that now, because this gets really technical, and, well, actually, the first one's not too bad. The second one... Pretty technical? Strap in. All right. All right. I don't fly planes, so that's why he's covering this and not me. 
So the first, there was two flight test studies conducted. The first one looked at the controllability of the Electra L188 under conditions of multiple engine failures. So they looked at, they tested, they went up to altitude and failed certain engines and yeah. played with the power settings. These operate under circumstances considerably more critical than those required for the certification of the aircraft. Okay, which makes sense. So they're doing more extreme things than would have been performed during the flight test for certification. Right. Yep. These tests were to determine the minimum controllable airspeed, or VMC, one of the V speeds, yep. of the aircraft in various bank angles with one or two engines inoperative. So is that basically the minimum speed you need to be going to keep control? Yes. Let me continue. In addition, the test determined the maximum asymmetric power at which the aircraft handling could be maintained at a constant low airspeed. So looking for, can heading stay the same? Despite losing engine power two on Two engines, side. yeah. And then how much power you can apply without the whole thing you trying know, to veer like, off course. Yeah, it's screwing up the entire, everything. All right. The first test found that with... Engine number one propeller feathered, and the other three engines producing a total of 3,800 horsepower, VMC, or the minimum controllable airspeed, ranged from 110 knots with a 5-degree bank to the right to 136 knots with a 5-degree bank to the left. Interesting. So as long as you were within those parameters, you could still maintain control of the aircraft. The second test... Propeller number one was feathered. Propeller number two was windmilling, which is when you don't auto-feather, and it's just spinning because spinning of the wind. People, most people think that's a better than having the prop not spinning at all with it feathered, but that's actually worse because it creates more drag. drag. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> with engines three and four producing a total of 3,800 horsepower. VMC was found to be 125 knots with five-degree bank to the right, and up to 154 knots with a 5-degree bank to the left. Okay. So you need a little bit more airspeed. Yep. Which makes sense. But it, it, it there is potential for controllability. Right. right. It's not completely uncontrollable. Another test found that with propeller 1 feathered and propeller 2 windmilling, power could be adjusted in engines 3 and 4. Remember, those are on the right-hand wing. Number 1 and 2 are on the left. And the aircraft could maintain directional control as long as the total power output of both engines does not exceed the maximum power output of a single engine. So as long okay. as combined, they are not 5,000 horsepower. Right. You could still maintain directional control. Despite the flight test not replicating the exact conditions of Eastern Airlines Flight 375, the results derived from these tests provide the board with valuable information concerning the capabilities of Electra under predetermined adverse conditions. So it was useful information. Right. They got a lot of good stuff out of this, even though it wasn't the exact conditions that they were in, because they used a constant power setting while this flight, they had power surges and stuff like that that right. they were messing with. Well, and because there's no flight data recorder, there's no way to replicate those. The best that investigators were able to do in this circumstance was find the instruments. And because these are analog instruments, depending on impact, they were able to imprint yeah. the reading of that instrument on the glass. And so they knew what things were set at at moment of impact. But through the whole accident sequence, they have no way of knowing. And they didn't have sim simulators back then. Nope. So they had to do these tests with a test pilot 
and make sure he didn't crash. Yeah, pretty much. Test pilots, it's not like now where you can just plug the FDR stuff into a simulator and be able to know replicate, what yeah, replicate what happened. It, and with a pilot that's in the airline and figure out what training and all that stuff, they didn't have any of that. It was like, give them parameters and pray they came back to tell them what, what happened and what was safe and etc. So, All right. Now we go on to the next study. A further study was made of the performance and control of the Electra under critically adverse conditions, particularly the drag aspects and large yaw angles. Wow. Woohoo. That's some fancy wordage. This study determined that previous information on required horsepower can only be applied if the aircraft does not have a high drag configuration. Which is a problem, given so that. So basically, everything you talked about with them throwing birds into the engine was at cruise flight. Oh. Well, they did some at takeoff power. Right, but we're talking about high drag configuration. So this is when the aircraft is in a climbing high yaw angle with flaps and stuff like that yeah yeah so that's when they decided to do this the excessive yaw associated with a flat turn and small radius produces drag to the extent that abnormally high power is required to maintain flying speed i.e prevent the plane from stalling so remember that flat turn is when the wings don't bank at all they remain level yeah and they do and you turn like a car side to side so you need a lot of power to, to do, do that. that. To maintain level flight when you do that. Otherwise, you're going to get some weird things that happen, which we'll dive into. They found that power required versus turning radius reveals that 110 knots and 10 degrees of bank angle, the power required curve becomes asymmetric at a turning radius of 2,000 feet. I'd look up the power required curve, which I think is just the power curve which you learn about in your basic pilot training. But here's a little definition, I think from, who's it from? Flightliteracy.com. The power required curve represents the amount of power needed to overcome drag in order to maintain a steady speed in level flight. Gotcha. Okay. So it's like the minimum that you need. Right. The following is from the report, and I will do my best. <laughs> reading this verbatim. I will do my best to, afterwards to break it all down. The report states, It is known that the radius of the flat turn from an easterly heading to a northeasterly was less than 2,000 feet. It logically follows that if the drag, which is related to the power required, is many times higher than the total thrust available under any engine condition, additional thrust is available only by assuming a steep nose-down attitude Otherwise, the aircraft will rapidly lose airspeed. Okay. Okay, so... Let's, get, let's dive into that one a little bit. Okay. So, when it turned from the runway heading in that flat turn... It right. turned left. Turned left. It had a radius less than 2,000 feet. So, that means it needed... It says here, the power required is many times higher than the total thrust available under any engine conditions. Even if all four engines were running full power, in that turn, they would not be able to maintain altitude, no matter what. They didn't have enough speed over the wings. Even if all four engines were working properly, which they were not. So the only way to 
get game. enough speed is to either drop the nose. Which is the normal way to get out of a stall. Right. Or otherwise, your aircraft will just lose all that airspeed. Right, and then fall right. to the ground. Going back to the two witness photographs, investigators determined... I don't know how they did this. Some sort of witchcraft. There's a lot of things that are like, we determined this. And normally today, they'll be like, this is how we determined that. And it didn't happen in this report? No. Right. right. That the aircraft speed in the first picture taken was 118 knots. And then the second picture, remember, taken one second later, the airspeed was 103 knots. Yeah. So how, how they determine how you get that? that from a still... Right, geometry or something. I don't. I don't know. Probably geometry of some kind. It's gotta be magic. Given the configuration of the aircraft at the time, the board determined that the aircraft stall speed was 108 knots. Ooh. Remember, they were at 103 knots. And they're so, dropping. Yeah. That's and their and their nose is up. So. Yep. So for reference, increasing the angle of attack or the nose up of the plane we'll decreases the speed. Yeah. Increases stall speed? Increases stall speed. Yeah, but it decreases the airspeed yes. of the airplane. Careful with that, because uh, the stall speed only increases with load factor. So you can you can do this all you want and never change the load factor. So we won't dive into that too much, because that's, that's a whole ground lesson for your flight training. <laughs> okay. Next one has an exclamation point, so I'll back up a little bit. Furthermore, <laughs> extreme angles of yaw which occur in a flat turn, cause the fuselage to practically shield one wing from airflow. Oh, no. So I have a little model here. I'm going to show these guys. When you do a skid, or a, a flat turn, which is also known as a skid, all of a sudden this wing over here, let's say we're doing a, a flat turn to the left. Now the left wing is in the shadow of the fuselage. So now there's no air going over the wing. blocking the air going over the wing. And if there's no airflow going over the wing... It stalls. It stalls. One wing stalls. Yes. So it dips. The left wing stalls. Now, that's not the only thing. So I call that as a skid. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, the opposite wing that's not shielded from the fuselage, in this case, in our example, the right wing in this accident, is now producing additional lift. Right. That is because it is now traveling faster than everything around it. Which is why the left wing was down. So the left wing had no lift. Not no lift. It had considerably less, less lift. lift. And now the right wing is generating additional lift. And it has engines running. Yep. Right. Which is so, not helping the problem at all. So all the lift, most of the lift is on the right wing, and there's very small amount of lift on the left wing. So these two phenomena, the reduced lift and the left wing, and the increased lift in the right wing causes a condition called roll due to yaw. So the left gotcha. wing dips. Left wing dips and the right wing rises. This condition is normally countered by aileron and rudder in the opposite direction. So if you're going to the left, you want to roll the ailerons to the right and put the rudder to the right. That would correct it. But this counteraction in the controls becomes uncontrollable at low airspeeds when the control surface's ineffectiveness is due to low airspeed. Oh. So the well, when you're going at a slow airspeed to begin with, there's only so much your control surfaces can do to get right. you out of this situation. And we know from the wreckage that the left aileron wasn't used. Right. It's like when you're landing in a crosswind, you have to input a certain amount of rudder. Mm -hmm. Now, for every aircraft, there is a point where the rudder will no longer maintain you in a straight line. For a crosswind. Right. There's limits to in it. In order to, however, 
actually do that, you can fly the airplane a little bit faster because then you have more authority on that rudder because it has more wind flowing over the control, control surface. surface. Yeah. Unfortunately for Eastern Airlines Flight 375, there is a point where the roll is higher than the countering with the control surfaces and the roll due to yaw is unrecoverable. Oh, that was going to be my next question. So if they had dipped the nose down and gained airspeed, would they have been able to recover? Yep. So unfortunately, due to their low altitude and the, this is the condition of the airplane, there was no chance of saving the aircraft. Dang. There's nothing the crew could have done. So did the aircraft... I Maybe I missed this in the story, but did the aircraft go through that turn by itself? So that is probably what's going to happen because you got now you got two engines on the right wing producing thrust... And probably at full power. And two yep. engines on the left not producing thrust or minimal amount of thrust. Yeah, yes, we know that one, one was out. One is feathered. And then two was um, inconsistent. So, well, four, but we still had the number three engine producing full power. So that would cause the aircraft to start that flat turn. And once they did that, it was basically it was game, game over. over. Right. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> we aren't doing this on purpose, by the way. It's literally just happening. We used to do this all the time. Nick's not up here, or he'd be like, stop it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. That is, that's it for me. That's a very interesting one for a bird strike, because it, it isn't super a lot about the bird strike and a lot about what happened to the aerodynamics of the airplane because of the bird strike. Yeah, that's... It went a lot more into the effects of maneuvers than the actual, like, it caused this thing in the engine, blah, blah, blah. Right. So. Did you want to read the probable cause? I will. However, there is one thing I do want to mention before that that I only read because it is the thing right before the probable cause. Okay. I did not look into this at all. I literally just saw this. Quote, the investigation disclosed the first failure points of the seat and seatbelt attachments and also pinpointed injury-producing environment within the cabin. In view of these findings, recommendations were made by the board soon after the accident with the objective of enhancing passenger safety aspects of the Electra L-188 aircraft. Based on these recommendations, considerable research was engendered, which it is hoped will result in an overall improvement in passenger safety, oh. end quote. So I do have a recommendation. They apparently publish them separately. So, huh. I'm assuming that a good percentage of the deaths were caused by people being injured by their seats. Or their seatbelts failing or something. Something to that effect. And to be fair, any aircraft impacting the water vertically, you're not great. Not... It's kind of surprising people survived, right. but, to be perfectly honest. But given the era, I mean... Yes. Seat belt technology was not at its prime. I mean, true. cars didn't have seat belts yet. So, and this is probably where that research really took, took off. off. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the probable cause verbatim from the report. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the unique and critical sequence of the loss and recovery of engine power following bird ingestion, resulting in a loss of airspeed and control during takeoff. Short, simple. To the point. Yep. It's kind of nice because some of the reports we read today have, like, page-long probable causes. Like This was 15 pages with <sighs> the appendices. Even worse than the last one. Yeah, the, yep. the whole picture took up the whole last page. I know. But that being said, this one was a lot more complex than the last one. I would say yes, which is why it is not in chronological order. 
We're like, start with an easy one, go to the more difficult one. Mm-hmm. We have a couple more of Two these more. coming up for you. The biggie is at the end. I bet you can guess which one that you is. You all probably know what it is. I really enjoyed this one. This was that. I had never heard of it before. Yeah, and me neither. And I got to pull out a lot of stops for. I like learning about the aerodynamics of stuff and how it how it changes depending on how engines work and all that stuff. I think yeah, that's, that's cool. It helps that you're an actual pilot too. That's yeah, that's one so. of the big things they teach you because we perform slips, which is the opposite of a skid. So if you're going into a turn, it's going like this. Mm-hmm. So both wings still generate lift in that way, but the skid, one wing. Is yes. in the shadow of the fuselage, so they teach you that you know you got got to keep the little tiny ball in the middle in order to stay so you coordinated, don't so you don't slip or skid. So yeah. Skids are not inherently dangerous, but they can cause issues. Issues because when you fly the airplane in an uncoordinated state, you can stall and spin the aircraft. But the skid is far more dangerous because you have less wing surface area generating lift. They're shielding, right? right. So that was that was from kind of. Revisit that and get it back in the noggin for <laughs> my flight. Future. When, when we go offline next, I'll show you guys. Because when you guys, when you're in the airplane, if you press on the rudder, if you start to do the left one, you'll see that the whole airplane starts to roll roll over. And you have yeah. to actually, to turn left, you actually have to input a little bit of right. And you, you maintain that right. It's really weird. We kind of talked a little bit more about yawing in a previous mini series. Of the rudder hardovers. Yeah, that was episodes 13, 14, and 15. There you go. But that was incredibly relevant then because the rudder, in that case, cases had failed, leading to yaw to roll. Right. All right, friends. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to all our patrons. As always, you guys are great. You are welcome to unbuckle now. Thank you for stepping in. Thank you for flying with hard landings. Uh, You're free to move about the cabin. <laughs> if you don't know anything about the Patreon, we highly suggest check it out. There's a info tab on our website. You can also just look us up on Patreon and see everything that's included with that. Bunch of extra content. So many amazing benefits. You would not believe it. It's worth every single penny you put into it. Maybe even a little bit more. Now it is for sure. Yeah. So, uh, again, check out the merch site. Give us your summer vacation stories for June. Next week is the week we are doing the episode. So, thank you so much for listening. Have a safe and wonderful week, and we will catch you all next week. Flippity-flop. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at HardlandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Brendan and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.